I invite you to pray with me. Lord, it's Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent. For the next 40 days, we have the privilege of surveying your cross, lamenting our sin, and resting in your righteousness. For your glory and our growth, we ask you to inundate us with fresh grace in the coming weeks. Convince us again that we are much more beloved than broken. Indeed, we don't want an ordinary Lenten season, Jesus. Melt us in your mercies and overwhelm us with your love. Astonish us with your kindness, for your kindness leads us to repentance. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. It is all about what you've done for us, not what we promise to do for you. It's not about beating ourselves up. It's about lifting you up. That's why we begin Lent today, anticipating our wedding, not our funeral. For you are the perfect bridegroom who died to make us your cherished bride. The work has been done. The dowry has been paid in full. And the wedding dress of your righteousness is ours. The invitations have been sent out and the date has been set. Hallelujah. Over these next 40 days, give us an insatiable hunger for yourself, Lord. Reveal new dimensions of your love and intensify our longing for the day of consummate joy, the wedding feast of the Lamb. In light of that banquet, we choose to deny ourselves or fast certain pleasures for this very brief season. But we're not looking to get one thing from you, Jesus, just more of you. Fill our hearts with your beauty. Fill our hearts with your bounty. Fill our hearts with more of you. So we pray, Lord, in your holy and loving name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see everyone this evening. If I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Romans, kind of the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, 944 in the Bibles in front of you. If you feel like you want to flip in that direction. This is Ash Wednesday. If you haven't celebrated Ash Wednesday service, we're really glad you're here. Our church actually began on, on an Ash Wednesday um, 17 years ago, and we did it because Ash Wednesday kicks off this season known as Lent, which is really just a time of preparation as we anticipate the resurrection of Christ, this opportunity to celebrate that the death is dead and that Jesus has won. And simply, Lent is a season for a renewed commitment towards holiness and, and really is seeking um, to deepen our, our walk with, with Jesus. And so I'll give you a couple of ways to engage over this season. We've been mentioning these on Sundays if you've been uh, with us in services or maybe you've seen in the loop, but, but one of those is to go through a devotional called Journey to the Cross. We still have an, uh, a few uh, print copies um, out these doors by the Connect Center, and so you're welcome to grab one of those. Um, if, you, uh, if you start late, that's okay. If you miss a date, that's okay. Just start on the next day. Um, this is just about a journey of just connecting with Christ. And so we're not trying to prove anything. We're not trying to show how fierce we are for Christ. We're just trying to understand actually how fierce he is 
for us. And so you can grab a, a print copy. We'll send out again in the loop this next week um, a link to a digital version of it. So that's one way to engage. They're, they're pretty short readings, um, but it'll guide you through the next 40 days. The other thing that, that we're asking to do as a church, and it's been neat to see how many of these cards have been taken. We did this years ago, the 40 days of, of prayer and, and fasting. So it doesn't mean you, you do all 40 days yourself. Um, we get to do it as a, as a church. And so there's cards out uh, of these doors under one of the TVs. And you just you pick a card, and it tells you what day to, to pray. It suggests a prayer on the back, actually, from the journey to the cross. And so as you're leaving today, um, if you want an opportunity to, to lean into some of the, the ancient practices of the church, Church, um, doing things like fasting can be a great way to do that for those that are, that are healthy. Um, but before we go to Romans 7, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would have your word come to us with compassion and conviction, with clarity, um, and that it would instill in us uh, a right response Father, what we need and what we need every time we gather is that we would leave this time more grateful for what Christ has done, more impressed with who he is, more full of hope with what he promises to, to bring about to completion on the day when he returns. And so, Holy Spirit, would you lift Jesus high in this place, that all of our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We will not be focusing on all these verses, but I wanted to give some context for where we're going. This is the word of the Lord, Romans 7, 21 through 8, 16. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and force him, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, 
to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to grab a seat. Brendan Manning was a Catholic priest who left the priesthood to marry um, Rosalind Ann Walker. He was a devout Christ follower his entire life, all the way to the very end. He was also uh, recovering, stumbling, recovering again, stumbling, recovering again, alcoholic until the day that he, he died. He's also the author of a number of books. Some are, are some of my favorite. His most famous one is The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in that book, he describes himself like this. He says, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. His bundle of paradoxes. Wonder if any of us can relate to that. I think Paul would, the author of Romans, I think would identify with Manning's words. I think he did actually in verses 21 and uh, 22 in Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells with my members. You go back a few verses earlier to to verse 15 in chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I could for sure stamp those verses over my life. I imagine many, if not all of you can as well. We delight in God's law. It means we, we, we love the God of the Bible. We love the Bible. We love his righteous rules. They're good they, and they bring life to us. And at the same time, we delight in the things that dishonor God. And it's such a weird and uncomfortable and disorienting place. And yet, that is how we live. We love God and not or, and we sin. We love God and we sin. And both impulses are, are strong in us. The, the language that Paul uses here at the end of, of chapter 7, he, he compares this to this waging war that's happening inside of him. What do we do with this? What do we do with this seemingly Jekyll and Hyde way of, of being? I think the first thing to do is just to admit it. Don't, don't be surprised by it. Be honest about it, that you can both love God and love the things that dishonor God simultaneously. There is a war waging within it. Second thing is I, th- I would go where Paul goes, which is verse 24 and following. Paul has the realization of this inner war of desires and delights. And what he doesn't do is immediately jump to what 
we're supposed to do. And there are things that we're going to talk about that we are called to do. But the first thing he does, he doesn't go to what he is supposed to do or tell us what we're supposed to do, but he goes to what Jesus has done. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, I can't believe some of the stuff I think, some of the things I say, some of the things I don't say but I think and I really want to say, some of the, some of the grudges I hold, some of the anger I spew. I just, and you get this picture of Paul just being honest about it and saying, ah. But he moves on. He says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And this incredible summary statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the answer? Wretched man, wretched woman, this bundle of paradoxes. It's Jesus. That's the answer. There is therefore now no condemnation. We're going to camp out um, most of this time in Romans 8.13. We're going to take kind of a hard, long-ish look at what we're supposed to do and can do in light of this inner war that's happening. But what we do is we first pass through what Christ has done. A one-word summary, if you're going to go from kind of the end of chapter 7 through much of the first half of, of chapter 8, a one-word summary of all of these statements of, uh, it, it would be the gospel. Just the word gospel. It's, it's good news. The therefore in Romans 1 is connecting the verses that that came before at the end of seven and what we're gonna look at when we go through chapter eight, but you could easily keep tracing it back all the way actually to Romans chapter one and this, this statement in Romans 1.17 that says the righteous shall live by faith. The, 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 the whole letter is framed under this principle that to be right with God is not first and foremost, or it's never dependent upon what we do, but on what Christ has done. And that's good news because if you go a few verses later, you go one verse later, it actually says the wrath of God is revealed on high against all unrighteousness and godliness of men who suppress the truth. And then Paul begins, he just continues this, this argument for chapters to, to, to say this, everyone falls short of the glory of God. That no one is righteous. No, not one. Or maybe the language of Paul here in Romans 7, that we're, we're wretched before a holy God. But thanks be to God, there is no condemnation. And the reason is because Jesus came. We, we see this in verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. We couldn't do it. By sending his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh, God became like us for sin, and then he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now what that's saying is that Jesus came and lived how we were meant to live. He didn't have this inner war. When the temptation struck, he never gave in. Not, no, not one time. And then he went to a cross, and so he lived the life we were meant to live, and then he went to a cross where he died the death that we had earned. And then he went to a tomb, and he rose three days later to, to, to say, my offering works. It's, it's efficacious. It's powerful to forgive any who would come that the righteous might live by faith. Okay, so I just, as we go through... Romans 8, 13, as we, we, we proceed through this text, let that statement, no condemnation. That's the umbrella that, that we, we do this all in. That's the, that's the banner in which we move forward through this text. No condemnation. January 2018, 31-year-old um, Daniel Brandon died from asphyxiation. His African rock python named Tiny choked him to death. 
He had kept this pet snake for 16 years. He raised the snake since it was small enough to just fit in one of his hands. As the snake grew, Daniel was obviously aware of how strong and powerful his pet was, but he also believed that Tiny wouldn't hurt him. In his own words, he used to talk about his, his snake. He, he would say, my baby. He felt the snake was safe enough, even though it would strike out at others that would enter his room. He was sadly and tragically wrong. And it is a tragic story, and I'm in no way impugning him for having a pet snake and want to be careful to not use the tragedy of him losing his life as fodder for a sermon, but it does give us a very real and raw picture of what, what we, I'll just say what I, can do with sin in my life. Try and domesticate it. It often starts small, we can hold it in our hand. And as it grows and grows, we still think it's submitted to us. It's after all our pet. We're the one in control. We can, we can still def defeat it. We might even name it, rename it to sound tame and safe. And if we have signs that maybe it isn't so safe, after all, we, I can often ignore those signs. And sadly, we can end up being strangled by it. Let me change the imagery a bit. Some of you are like, thank you. Um, consider this helpful phrase from Garrett Kell. Sin hides the price tag. It presents itself as so alluring and so beneficial and so satisfying, and it hides the price. It ultimately demands our life. So what should we do instead of nurturing it and domesticating it and being okay with it? What do we do with all these competing desires? One of the things God's word gives us is here in Romans 8, 13. I'll start with verse 12. So then, brothers, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But here's what we do with these competing desires. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The most extended treatment of that verse I've read was a book by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin, and here's the thesis. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. To mortify means to kill. Think of mortician. John Owen gives a, a really powerful summary of why this be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's never neutral and it's never safe. A big part of the Christian life is an active battling between the delight we have in God and his word and our flesh that still desires things that dishonor God and go against his word. Ed Welch, a really respected, well-published uh, Christian counselor uh, in a makes a really bold statement in a book on addiction. He says this, he says, the only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. That is so convicting to me. So I was prepping, you know, not wanting to preach and then miss the message. I just, do I 
really make a declaration of all-out war when I go after the things that dishonor God? Let me give you the answer, no. Not often, not enough, not nearly enough. And what Ash Wednesday affords us, what this Lenten season gives us, many wonderful things, is an opportunity to to change that by God's grace and the power of the Spirit. So it's an opportunity, even tonight, like even in this moment, to decide that sin is not safe and to declare war against it. I first heard this idea of, of making war with sin from John Piper, who, who got it from Ed Welch, and, and a, a very famous sermon um, from 15-plus years ago. Piper says this, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings, and I see so little war. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. Now, if you go listen to his clip, he yells it. I mean, he just loses his lid, just absolutely. And for some of us, maybe we got to hear it that way. I'm not going to say it that way tonight, but maybe we do. You can just make war. John Piper, you'll find a bunch of hip-hop songs with him on the front end yelling. So you are welcome to, to go find that. I'm not going to yell it, but I do want it in my heart, and I want it in yours. Make war. It's not the only metaphor or call to action for Christians to take as we battle sin, but the idea of declaring all-out war is really beneficial. Variety of reasons here. Let me give you one, and this is how Ed Welch applies it. He says this. He says, there is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. If you've been to Whatcom Falls Park um, anytime recently, probably in the last six months, maybe a year, there's certain trails as you're walking in, you'll see a, a yellow sign kind of pounded into the ground. And on it says something like this. It says, warning, there's coyotes in the area. I've run by those um, signs a, a number of times. At first, I was like, the first time I ran by, I was a little nervous, like maybe I shouldn't go down this trail, but then you do it again, and you do it again, you know, by 50 times, you don't even see the sight, you just kind of keep going. My wife and I were running over in Whatcom Falls about a month ago, and I came around a, a corner of the trail, and, and there was a big coyote standing there. And so I stopped, my wife was coming around, I said, stop, stop. And then another one came out, and then a third one came out, and, you know, you don't, have to be you don't have to be faster than the coyote. You say to be faster than the person you're with. I'm just joking. And, yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing to repent of here on this Ash Wednesday. My cowardliness. No, I did, like, it was, it was, a, it was a intimidating moment to be that close. They, they all kind of haunched up and looked at us. And I just kind of had, I was, Katie was right here. I'm just kind of like, we're just going to walk backwards. I'm cool, you're cool, it's all right. And the whole time I'm scanning sharp sticks and appropriate sized rocks and, and I'm getting ready. Like, this could be on, I'm ready to fight to the death. This is definitely not even close to being in battle. I don't want to take that away from anyone that's experienced that. But what Welch was saying is, I experienced, like your focus becomes laser sharp. You're really dialed into the moment. 
You see the threat and it is real. You don't ignore it. Now, coyotes, thankfully, aren't incredibly dangerous for humans. Attacks are pretty rare. It still didn't matter. We didn't charge them hoping they would run away. Oh, I'm sure it will be fine. Let's just keep going. We didn't tempt fate. I didn't ignore their presence. We walked backwards, and when we got far enough, we turned and ran off. Let me ask a question. Is there something that's alarming in your life that's not alarming enough? Something that should be, that the bell should be ringing. But they're not. There's a right now opportunity to declare war. Peter Adam asked um, this question in an article that's titled the same way. He says, what sins are you killing today? And he goes on to clarify. He doesn't just randomly walk around and ask people. It's people that he's either mentoring or, or counseling. And he lets that question linger. And oftentimes when, when he asks it to someone for the first time, there's just kind of a stunned silence. And then he goes on and he says this. I don't want to know what they are. I just want to know that you're doing it. And that's an interesting take. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be helpful to, to share the things that, are, that you're really wrestling with, with those that you trust, the people that, are, that, you can, that can hold that well. But what's most important is this posture. In this text, the deeds of the body are many. And so the posture of a Christian is one, as John Owen asks, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Now, think about this run and walk and falls. The goal of Romans 8.13 isn't to frighten us that we never go into the, the wonder of the woods because there are wild beasts there. This, the goal of this verse is to not say, be so afraid of everything in the world. Be on such high alert that you can never enjoy anything. It's just saying, be mindful. Be aware. And when threats come, respond to them appropriately. The reason John Owen says that this is daily work and to always be at it while you live is there will always be some sin in your life to slay. That might feel discouraging. It doesn't have to. I don't think it has to feel discouraging. What it can do is paint a realistic picture of the very ordinary Christian life. Paul saying, I struggle. I'm a paradox. I love God and I do things that dishonor God. Sometimes it feels like it in the same moment. I don't even know how we do that, but we do it. That's just the normal, ordinary Christian life. Yes, there will always be a battle of desires in our hearts in this life. No, the desires of the flesh don't always have to win. Amen. Yes, one day the battling will stop because one day we who are justified will be glorified, will finally be what we've always longed to be when Christ returns. And until that day... We first and foremost confess our inability, run to Jesus, hide ourselves in him under the banner and declaration of no condemnation, and we make war. We may lose some battles. You are, no, you will lose some battles. I will lose some battles. But by the spirit of resurrection power, we can also win them. That's the hope of this verse. For if you live by the deeds of the flesh, you shall surely die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the assumption there is that you actually can. So you actually can battle and win. Maybe a bunch of them. 
The, you know, and one of the things that's interesting, this contrast with death and life, is that this is an invitation not to a life of drudgery, but actually to a life of flourishing. That's the point, that we, we don't go down the path of decay and corruption and destroy, whether it's relationally or economically or physically or, or spiritually, but that we enter into life that we might even right now taste and have abundant life, not just future right now. And you see that actually in these, these verses that came before. In, in verse 4, it says, live by the Spirit and taste, or to walk by the Spirit, that we walk in a new way. In verse 6, to live by the Spirit and taste life and peace. Or verse 7, to not live, this contrast with verse 7, to not live with hostility to God, but with a tenderness towards Him. And one way you could summarize um, what's happening from verses 1 to 13 with these two words, pardon and power. I don't remember who I heard that two-word phrase from, but it applies really well to this text. Pardon, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And power. Let me read verse 11 again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about that verse. What what, what Paul is actually using to talk about the type of power we have, here's what he uses, the resurrection. The spirit of resurrection that's able to, to the, the conquering of death. I was trying to think like what image could be stronger than the dead living. Sin lies to us in so many ways. One of its biggest lies is that it's all powerful. But that's not what this passage says. I love how Ryan Lister draws attention to this. He says this, he says, when we feel temptation's apparent omnipresence, it feels like it's everywhere, we assume temptation's apparent omnipotence, that it's all-powerful. Hope wanes as we feel powerless against temptation's constant assault, so we raise the white flag. This verse says we don't have to. Let me apply it this way. Is there a pattern of sin you feel stuck in? The tomb is empty. Is there a habit you just can't break? The tomb is empty. Have you tried and tried and tried and tried? The tomb is empty. Are you weary of the battle? The tomb is empty. Have you fallen maybe back into an old sin that you thought you had escaped? The tomb is empty. Say it over and over and over and over and over again. Say it the second after you sin again. The tomb is empty. The pardon is real and so is the power. Say just a few more things. Notice in verse 13 how we put to death, how we kill, it's by the Spirit. For if we live by the deeds of the flesh, we shall die. But if by the Spirit, the Spirit of resurrection power, we shall surely live. There's so many ways this works out. Uh, the Spirit raises the seriousness of sin to our, our attention. It, 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 the Spirit comes and, and, and draws attention to areas that we need to maybe pay more attention to. The Spirit comes and brings conviction of sin. The, the, the Spirit makes us uh, sensitive to maybe where we've become numb. And on and on, and there's so much to say, but, but let me tell you what it's going to feel like. War. 
I think it's one of the most helpful things about this. It's going to feel like war. It's a war waging inside. So you know what? It's going to sometimes feel gruesome. And it's going to feel hard. And it's going to feel difficult. And it's sometimes going to feel frightening. And it's going to be tough. Make war anyway. The tomb is empty. What I want to end with is notice this long gap between Paul says at the end of Romans 7 and then about about waging war and then this kind of warlike language in Romans 8, 13. And what he fills the space in between is this, the victory of Christ and the power of the Spirit. What fills the space is more of what Jesus has done and what the Spirit is doing than what we do. We, one of the things we often do is we forget that in our battle with sin. We forget what Christ has done and we forget what the Spirit is doing because what we do just feels so loud. What I want to end with is notice what comes after verse 13. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Here's how I'd love to send us out tonight after we sing and receive ashes and communion. Um, it's a call to, to make war but with sin, but buffered between two really big truths. The biggest battle has already been fought on Calvary, and Christ has won. Amen? Just let that rest on you. The biggest battle, Christ has already won. And as these verses went on and, and showed us, we make war not so much as soldiers, but as sons and daughters, who the Father promises to bring safely into our eternal home. And when that happens, as Romans 8 actually says towards the end, all the struggle will cease, all the battling will be done, and will one day be raised, glorified. And when Christ returns, sin will have no power and no dominion. And so for the next 40 days, and maybe for the 40 after that, maybe this would, will begin, maybe for some of you, you're already doing this. You're making it daily, you, you, your business, to, to care about the, the, the way you're divided in spirit or soul before the Lord. Maybe you can press deeper. For some of us, maybe that we've become numb to the things in our lives that we need to, to, be, to attend to. Maybe God could take these next 40 days and, and, and press us into them in a pursuit of holiness. Modify a little bit what Janelle prayed. Um, this wonderful prayer from Sky Smith. For the next 40 days, we have the privilege of surveying the cross, battling our sin in the power of the Spirit, and wonderfully resting in the full and complete and perfect and more than enough righteousness of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would search us and show us if there's any wrong way in us and that you would lead us in paths of righteousness. Help us not miss this moment.
to have your word applied deeply in us. And we'd not leave this place looking for coyotes around every single bush, but that we would know what to do when we see them. Because we want what living by the Spirit produces, a desire for you and honoring you and walking in your ways and loving you and what it does for those around us, for our neighbors as it benefits them and what it does for ourselves And we don't want what following the flesh does, which is the reverse of all of that. And so, God, would you allow us to to have this declaration of all-out war be sandwiched between the truths of what Christ has done and then who we are to the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.